welcome back guys so today we are doing we're starting with the new testament right and our first book is gonna be john's gospel so it's a little out of sequence obviously um but next week we will do the synoptic gospel so we will do matthew mark and luke today we're starting with john mainly because john is a bit different right and it's and if you've read it before you will notice that it's a bit different from um, the other three Gospels, which tend to be quite similar. So, yeah, you guys know the rules. Um, if you have any questions, comments, um, any thoughts you'd like to share, please feel free to stop me. Um, I, I feel like because we're in the New Testament, things are going to be different coming from you guys. Uh, Old Testament, you know, there, there wasn't really a lot of questions. And I think we we more knowledgeable about the New Testament, so we tend to have more thoughts, opinions, questions that we bring to it. Um, but uh, just just let's bear uh, with one another a little. Obviously, we won't be able to get to all the, the details and all the little uh, verses and passages. We're going to try and go as deep as we can, but we only have so much time. But as usual, after the session, when, when I'm done with the lecture, feel free to stay behind and we can discuss, we can talk, we can comment etc etc right so if you have your bibles turn with me to the gospel of john so go to uh, john's gospel and the gospel of john is it's amazing it's so rich and so beautiful i've read that the greek words used by john are quite simple and it's not sophisticated but the literature is quite layered so some books you will read once and you get everything, right? That's that. You're not going to gain anything by reading that book again. But John's Gospel, you read it every single time, you will find something new, something rich. It is so layered. It's also so full of Old Testament echoes and pictures that you might not recognize the first, second, or 400th, 400th time of reading, but they come through. It's written by John. We believe it's John. Uh, although he never says his name, right? It does say the disciple whom Jesus loved. So historically, it has always been recognized as John's gospel. So what is this gospel about, right? The main verse that tells us what the book is about is uh, taken in chapter 20. So John 20 verse, uh, sorry, John chapter 20 verse 30, right? I'm going to read it. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is saying, I have written this book so that you may believe, and in believing, you may have life. That's why John's Gospel is often printed as a standalone booklet and handed out for evangelization. So I, I remember when I was still in school, people who would come uh, as missionaries or whatever, They'd hand out these little booklets, you know, whenever they're doing street evangelism, whatever, and just be John's gospel. And I would encourage someone, I would encourage someone who is seeking for, wow, wow, you guys are only telling me now. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so we could hear everything. Okay, I'll start all over. I'll start all over. Right, I'll go. I'll go back to the start in my notes. Sorry about that, guys. I was too excited. Um. Oh, oh, did I just? Yeah, it was like the last two seconds off. Oh, sorry. I must have muted myself by mistake. Okay, okay. So I was saying this is what I was saying about John's gospel and evangelization, right? Um, I was saying that if I would encourage someone who's seeking for evangelization, sorry, who's seeking for salvation, uh, if you are struggling with assurance of salvation, or if you are new to the faith and you want to know about Christianity, I would encourage you to read John's Gospel, because this book is written so that you will believe. The audience that John is writing to seems to be Hellenistic Jews. So these are Jews who have been influenced by Greek culture. Some were... Some were Greek, uh, Greek-speaking Jews who had adopted certain Greek practices and traditions. Um, they even used a Greek copy of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 
They couldn't read Hebrew, so they used a translation instead. In your Bibles, you might see a footnote every now and then uh, saying that the, Septu the Septuagint uses this word or that word. That is, that is John's main audience, right? So if you go to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what, what kind of language does this remind us of? It should, it should bring to mind creation, Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God. And John uses language like that. He uses Old Testament language, but he changes it slightly. And here he's telling us that Christ is bringing about a new creation, a new humanity. Some people call it a third race. They say that there's now three races. There's Jew, Gentile, and the church. In the beginning was the word, right? What is the Greek word that is translated as word in that verse? The word is logos. So in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. So a lot of Greek philosophy had this idea of the logos. And the logos had the idea of God, but not quite, right? It wasn't a personal God. God was just a force. In today's times, it's kind of like how people speak of the universe. You know, the universe is doing this or energies. Um, so put yourself in that culture. And you hear John say in the beginning was the Logos. You don't have a problem with that, right? You're like, okay, yes, it was the Logos. And then he says, the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now you're like, what's going on here? And then verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is a radical, that's a radical statement, right? Because people back then, remember, had a bad, bad view of the flesh and of matter. So that is a very confrontational passage. It's, it's an attack on the Greek worldview. At the same time, this is attacking the Jews. Since the Jews at this time didn't really speak a lot of Hebrew, only those who grew up in Jerusalem did. Most of the Jews spoke Aramaic. Even Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in the synagogue, they may have read from the Hebrew scriptures, but most people wouldn't understand since they spoke Aramaic. And so they would read from what was called the Aramaic Targums. It's an Aramaic translation of the Bible. So if you, if you have a study Bible, you see how you have the, the Bible section at the top, top half, and then the bottom half, you tend to have the study notes and the footnotes, right? The Aramaic Targum would actually... Put the notes, uh, the study notes in the verse, right? So it would be like if you read if you read the Amplified Bible before, they take the interpretation and they put it right next to the text, right into the text, which is fine if the interpretation is correct. But if it's not, then there's a problem. And one of the things that they would do is they would try to protect the transcendence of God. So when you have passages like Genesis 11 where God says. Let us go down and see what man is doing. They would say, well, God can't come down to the earth because he's God. Right? He's transcendent. Why, why would he bother coming to, to us? So they would say that his word came down. And they would use it all the way through scripture like that. Wherever God seemingly became personal, they would say his word did it. So they were trying to protect God from ever dealing with humans. And they would always say, God's word did this. God's word did that. And in the Greek, the word is Logos. So when John writes, he writes, the word is God and the word became flesh. The word has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So the use of the term Logos is, is actually amazing because he's making connections with the culture, but he's infusing new and richer meaning into the words that are already being used. And this is done often in scripture. Right? Most of the, the authors in scriptures will, will do this. People today freak out about it, right? So if you use certain words uh, in preaching that are culturally popular and you infuse them with a Christian meaning, people will get upset about it, whereas that is exactly what the Bible authors did. So verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Throughout the Old Testament, we have seen the tabernacle, uh, the temple, right? God's glory would come into the temple. And now we are seeing it in a person. Christ is the true tabernacle, the true glory of God. If you want to see the true glory of God, it is found in Christ. So John's gospel is, 
very different from the other three Gospels. The other three are called Synoptic Gospels. They are called that because the other three look at pretty much the same thing. They tend to be similar. What happens in Luke, you will find happening in Matthew. John's Gospel, however, there's no birth narrative. He doesn't tell us about the birth of Christ. There's no genealogies telling us who's the father of who. John's Gospel has no parables, right? It only covers about 20 days in the life of Jesus. So it's, it's, it's very different. The stories that are, that are told are not parables, but they are parabolic in the sense that they have a deeper meaning. You know, it's not a story for the sake of it. What you'll find in scripture is that there are different ways of looking at the kingdom of God, according to the different authors. So the apostle Paul will have the idea of in Christ. So everything is fulfilled in Christ. Um, when you, when you, and we'll make sense of it when we, when we look at the book of Ephesians, because if you read Ephesians, there you will see a lot of in Christ, in Christ, you know, this, this must be done in Christ. Another way the authors speak of the kingdom of God is through proclaiming Christ the victor, right? Christ who wins. Christ has conquered. He's won the battle. And that is what happens a lot in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those Gospels, they proclaim that Christ is victorious and he's here. And so the miracles we see in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, they are not so much about a deeper spiritual meaning they are more about when the kingdom comes, there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering because the kingdom is here. Christ has won over, over all of those things. But how does John speak of the kingdom of God? So John writes quite a bit of scripture, right? He's given us the gospel of John and then 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and then he writes Revelation. And you will find that John sees the kingdom of God as a hidden reality. Right? He sees the kingdom of God as a hidden reality. And you see this especially in Revelation because that book is, is an unveiling. Right? You get to see behind the curtain. You get to see behind the scenes of the kingdom of God. And that is kind of what's going on in this gospel as well. He shows you the behind the scenes, the hidden message. So for John, the feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish is not so much about communicating that there won't be poverty in the new heavens and the new earth. It's more about Jesus being the bread of life. And that is what John goes on to say in chapter 6, that Jesus is the bread of life. The feeding of the physical bread is symbolic of Jesus feeding with spiritual bread. And that is going on all of the time. So when Jesus heals a blind person, in John's gospel, it's not the same as in Mark, Matthew, or Luke, where it's a sign of the kingdom coming where there won't be any blind people anymore, right? John's teaching, John's teaching will take from that that Jesus can remove your spiritual blindness, but it's a hidden reality. It's, it's a physical sign pointing to the spiritual. So only those with eyes to see can see the kingdom. And that is the message of some of the parables, right? The, the kingdom of, uh, think of the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, right? It looks pathetic. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. When in reality, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, it is much greater, right? It's important for us because we get spiritual eyesight problems. We stop seeing clearly. We start looking only at the physical, you know, what's going on in our immediate world, what's going on in the news, what's going on in the workplace, what's going on in, the, in society, what's going on in our relationships. We forget that there's a spiritual reality to all of this. And the spiritual reality is what's really going on. So what is a spirituality? spiritual reality? It's that the kingdom of God is being built. God is in control. Christ is on his throne reigning. So that is why it's so important to read God's word and to see these things. So if you go to chapter 2, the, the book begins with his first miracle. Um... The book begins with his first miracle. Uh, it's the wedding in Cana, which is a weird miracle if you think about Jesus and our view of him today, right? Or the perception of Jesus in our current society. The first miracle he does is not raising someone from the dead or healing the blind and sick or casting out demons. What is he doing? He's extending the party, right? How nice would it have been to have Jesus with you during lockdown when alcohol was banned? Uh, Jesus extends the party 
and he keeps it going by supplying more wine. And that is the promise of the messianic kingdom, that it'll be, in, it'll be like enjoying well-aged wine. That's in an Old Testament, right? So here, the Lord Jesus brings wine in abundance, and it's good wine. It's the best wine to extend the marriage feast and to bring joy. That is what wine is supposed to do, it's supposed to make the heart glad. It's a gift from God. That's what Psalm 104 says. And Proverbs 3 teaches that it's a reward for those who honor God. So Christ does this miracle to remind us that the kingdom of God is about joy as well. That's how Jesus begins his ministry. And he also takes these purification jars, he fills them with water, and he changes them into wine. And it's symbolic of a shift from the old ceremonial law to the joy of the kingdom coming in the new covenant. And then if you go to chapter 3, chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is a Jew who comes to him by night. He comes to him by night uh, because he's a bit scared to be seen talking to Jesus. He comes to him and he says, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus starts off by saying, we know, we have it figured out. We know you come from God. Now, he thinks he's probably being nice and flattering to Jesus. But of course, that is blasphemous to think that Christ is just a teacher. So Jesus says to him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, where does that reply come from? Right? Nicodemus is not even mentioning the kingdom of God. So where does this come from? Well, chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together wonderfully because according to the people at that time, who is in the kingdom? If you, if you lived in that period of time, who, who is in the kingdom of God? It's the Jews, right? Only they will get to heaven. They are God's chosen people. So to the people, first thing is you have to be a Jew to be in the kingdom, to be, to be in heaven, to be saved. If you are a religious leader among the Jews, then you are really in the kingdom, right? Your position is guaranteed in heaven. If you are the top teacher, if you are the number one rabbi in Israel, then you can't be more in the kingdom than that. And that's what Nicodemus was, right? At least according to the people. So when Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom, let alone be in it, right? So that's a, that's a radical statement to say to a Jew, especially the chief rabbi at the time. So verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? So some say Nicodemus was being stupid there, but if he's the most preeminent teacher in Israel, then Nicodemus is not a stupid man. He's very smart. Jewish people are some of the smartest people on the planet. He's mocking Jesus. He's, he's asking almost sarcastically, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? Jesus says to him, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So some, some have said that, that water here refers to baptism, or it's a tricky verse. I don't think it's that complicated. If you read Ezekiel, it speaks of sprinkling, uh, sprinkling water and the spirit. Sprinkling of water is just washing and regeneration. So I think it refers to regenerate, regeneration here, being made new by the Holy Spirit. So he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So maybe you've heard people preach and say, you must be born again, right? As though it's an imperative, as though it's a command. Uh, it's not an imperative because it would be a, a nonsensical command. That's like saying to someone who's not even conceived to conceive himself in order to be born. It cannot happen. You cannot conceive yourself. Jesus is not saying you must be born again, rebirth yourselves. It's a statement, not a command. Right? Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? You cannot order people to be born again. It is the work of the Spirit. And Jesus then goes on to discuss uh, and show that it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we don't quite know how he works. Right? But when he works, we can always see the effects of it. We see the fruits. That's what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
right? And then we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the story of the Samaritan woman. So who were, who were the Samaritans? So they were in the northern... If you remember, we had the kingdom of Israel. We had the northern kingdom. We had the southern kingdom. Uh, they were from the north. And uh, when we looked at the Old Testament, there was a time when the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians. So this, when this happened, the Assyrians sent their own people to intermarry with the Samaritan Jews. So they became a mixed race. And that's how a normal Jew saw them, right? They saw them as half-breeds, as, as dirty, as vile and outcast. So to the rest of the Jewish people, if you were Samaritan, you could not be in the kingdom of God because you were not pure, right? You, you were tainted. Your blood is, is, is no longer worthy of being uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Also, culturally in that day, if you were a woman, you were basically an object, Right? You, you existed solely for the purpose of making babies. And if those babies were not male, you were, not even, you were even more worthless in that society. The Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, they would say, they had a saying, they would say that it is better to be a dog than a woman. Right? How crazy, how inhumane. And these are recorded statements, by the way. These are things that they would say. So the Jewish person, so to the Jewish person, only men would be in the kingdom of God. If you're a woman, the kingdom is not for you, right? We would take dogs in before you. Now, if you are a Samaritan woman, then definitely not. If you are a Samaritan woman who's divorced and remarried five times and then became adulterous, it is impossible. You couldn't be further away from the kingdom. Yet that's the kind of woman that Jesus speaks to at the well, right? The kind that is told that you will never be in the, in the kingdom. But the good news is that both Nicodemus and the woman are saved, right? They are in the kingdom. Later on, we see Nicodemus go and get the body of Christ. So all of this to say that external cultural standards of holiness have nothing to do with your salvation, right? Salvation is in Christ alone. The religious leader, the so-called most holy person in Nicodemus, and the adulterous woman, the so-called chief of sinners, both need the same Christ. You and I need the same Savior that John the Baptist, Paul, or the holiest person that you know need. Okay. Verse 13, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, he, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman at the well thinks Jesus is only talking about physical water, but Jesus is talking about spiritual water. And that is the hidden reality, right? That there is a deeper thirst that the physical uh, 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 that the physical cannot satisfy. Yet only only Jesus can satisfy that. Um, so going on to chapter five, no, chapter six. Chapter six, he goes on to feed the five thousand, and he goes on to say that he is the bread of life. So verse thirty-five, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life." Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then verse 37 speaks of election. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this implies that no human being in the world, on his own, has the moral and spiritual ability to come to Christ unless God the Father draws him. Unless God gives you and I the desire and the inclination to come to him, then we cannot do anything, right? Um, and then on top of that, he gives us the ability to place our trust in Christ. Remember, God first loved us. God first chose us. Um, so it's all of God. It's all of God in, in salvation and in saving people. And so if you go to chapter 8, chapter 8. So C.S. Lewis once said that uh, there's only three ways to view Jesus. It's either he is a liar or he is a lunatic or he's a megalomaniac or he's God, right? So it's actually four ways. Um, but those are the three things. If you're going to look at Christ from a manly, worldly perspective, either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's a megalomaniac. Because he said radical st stuff about himself all the time. And throughout John's gospel, 
he has 22 I am statements. Right? He says, I am the door, I am the bread of life. And verse 12 of chapter 8, he says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So that is a massive statement. You can't just go around saying that. As believers, as believers today, you and I, we can though, right? Jesus says that we are now the light of the world. But it's important to remember that our light is derivative. It comes from Christ, right? We, we shine, we reflect the light of Christ. And in verse 21, if you go down to verse 21, he's talking to the Jews and he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, that is hectic. And then they, they answered him in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children... You would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, "We were not born of sexual immorality." So, what do you guys think the Jews are getting at with that statement? Right? We were not born of sexual immorality. Basically, they are mocking Jesus. They are mocking Jesus and saying, "Yeah, virgin, virgin birth, right?" Sure, sure, as if a woman can conceive of the spirit or whatever it is that you claim to say, right? They're saying that Jesus is an, an illegitimate child. He's born out of wedlock. So they're saying that he's born of sin. And then they say, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's interesting. Jesus says the reason that they don't understand and believe him is because they hate what he has to say. Right? They cannot bear to hear his word. And that is the root of unbelief. It's not that people intellectually cannot understand God's word. They do. But sinners love the darkness and they hate the light. So the reason for not understanding is really a hot issue. It's a moral one. You, you, do not, you do not understand, though you see, right? You do not perceive because you hate God and his word. And Jesus gets to the root of it in verse 44. He says, you are, of the, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So there's, a, there's an important principle here. Earlier on, Jesus affirms that the Jews are ethnically descendants of Abraham. Like, sure, you actually are descended from Abraham. But you are not in the character of Abraham, who was a godly man. Rather, they are in the character of Satan. They are of their father, the devil. It links us back to Genesis 3. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And these Jews are the seed of the serpent. These are the ones who are going to kill Jesus. That's what he says. You hate me and you are murderers, just like your father, the devil. So how is the devil a murderer from the beginning? In the Garden of Eden, the whole human race died. Right? Satan brought about death. Uh, he brought about death in the world. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we, not right, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So you see how the word Samaritan is a slur, right? It's a derogatory word because of how they are viewed as a people. To be a Samaritan was to be the worst of humanity to the Jewish people. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are, not 50 yet, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So that is where he makes his clearest statement that he is God. Right? That is straight up Old Testament language for when God said, I am. Right? Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses will lie and say Jesus is not God. And they will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. They will do all kinds of gymnastics with the text, twisting it to make it mean what it doesn't. But notice how the Jews that Jesus is talking to, they know exactly what it means. Because what did they do immediately after that? Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So they picked up stones to stone him and kill him. right? Because it is blasphemous to make that statement claiming that you are God. And the penalty for blasphemy was death. But of course, it's not blasphemy in this case because Jesus is God. And so he hides himself and he goes out of the temple. So that is clear evidence that Jesus is indeed God. He said so. And this is all going on in the first half of the book, right? John's, John's gospel is divided into two. So it's chapters 1 to 11 and then chapter 12 to the end. Chapters 1 to 11 are, is called the book of signs. And then 12 is kind of like a hinge. It's like the middle part. And then the rest is called the book of glory. Now, there are seven signs in John's gospel. He uses, John uses the word signs. He doesn't use the word miracle like the other gospels. And I think it's a more helpful word. It's a word that I wish we use more often, especially in our, in our day and age. And the analogy that I, I like to use, Mike, Mike uses this. Uh, he says, uh, if if you think about a sign, uh, like a road sign, a sign is not ultimate, right? A sign points us to something. And we tend to miss that with the miracles that we see in Scripture. We miss that they are a sign. The point of the miracle is not the miracle itself. You don't rejoice if you're driving down to Simbume in Durban when you see the first sign that says KZN 300 kilometers and you're like, amazing, this is the greatest and then you stop there and you pull over and you take pictures, selfies, and then you go home. That's stupid, right? The sign is pointing to some greater realities, pointing you to where there's, there's the beach, there's uh, the ocean, there's all, all the good stuff, right? As soon as you make miracles ultimate, then you've missed it completely. It's like rejoicing over a road sign instead of the actual destination. The signs are greater than themselves. They all point to Christ. And Jesus did say that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Instead of seeking Christ, they seek after signs, power, miracles, and everything else under the sun except for the sun. Right? So, um, one of the last signs, chapter 11, is the death of Lazarus. Verse 3 says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is, for, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he, he left straight away. Is that what the text says? No. It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So notice that John, notice that John tells us twice that Jesus loved Lazarus. So then someone comes to me and is like, Kaya, your brother whom you love is desperately sick. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know what? That's horrible to hear. I think I'll wait two more days and let him die. And you'd be like, what? what's wrong with you? The person that you love is dying. Go be with him. Go help him. But we see that Jesus, Jesus let Lazarus die. You would think that the loving thing to do would have been for Jesus to heal him. right? And we can't say that Jesus didn't love Lazarus because we are told in the text that he did twice. But there was something more important and something actually more loving for Lazarus. Uh, something more loving for Lazarus, for the family, and for you and for me. And that is the glory of God. And that's what Jesus says in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son may be glorified through it. And the application for us, the simple application for us here is that in our trials and our difficulties... Don't think because I'm suffering, God must not love me. You know, we might not 
we might not verbalize that thought, but sometimes we think it. I think we think it more often than we realize. And yet we, we see here that he loves us so much that he will use our situations to show his glory. And that is the best thing for us, actually. It's, it's all about God's glory, ultimately. And the second half of John's Gospel is called the Book of Glory because the narrative shifts and moves towards Jesus' Jesus's glorification through crucifixion and resurrection. Um, the glory of God is God's ultimate purpose in all he does. Why did he create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create in six days and fill the land with man and beast? Why did he create the angels, even the one who became Satan? Why did he forbid Adam and Eve from that one tree and allow Satan to tempt them to sin and cause all humanity to fall in Adam? Why did he flood the whole earth and leave one family alive and then scatter the nations in Babylon? Uh, he chose the Israelites to be a people for himself out of all the nations. You know Why? Uh, the cycle of sin and judgment and death and destruction and all of history up until this point in time, why does God do uh, what he does the way he does? The answer is simple. The glory of God is God's ultimate purpose in all he does, right? including the salvation and sanctification of his people. So from, from predestination to incarnation to sanctification to consummation, the ultimate purpose is the same, that God in Christ be magnified as supremely glorious. So Paul teaches us this much, right? He says that uh, God glorifies his people. God glorifies himself in sanctification, in sanctifying us, right? Um, and throughout the New Testament, you will just see glory, glory, glory to God's glory. And all, all things point towards God's glory. And really that is what we're created for. So we'll see more of that come through uh, the second half of the book. So if you go to chapter 12, Mary, it says Mary anoints Jesus and there's the, tri there's the triumphant entry. And Jesus uh, comes and he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that is a very important verse, right? So if you look at verse 32, he says, when, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. At this point in John's gospel, Jesus has used this phrase quite a few times, you know, being lifted up. And the Old Testament background of the phrase being lifted up or arising is always used in terms of warfare. And there you get the imagery of God arising, lifting himself up to destroy his enemies. Israel, when they would go to war, they would pray and ask God to arise to destroy the enemies. So when Christ speaks of being lifted up, the language echoes a warrior arising, being lifted up and getting ready to smash the enemies. And that is what is so ironic about, about this is Jesus is going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on a cross to be put to death. And yet even then, he's actually destroying his enemies on the cross and bringing all his people to him. The cross divides all of history and all of humanity it's the dividing point of everything. We saw that in the book of, of uh, Isaiah, in the servant song, that the servant would be crushed. And yet, even in his crushing, he makes many righteous. And he wins the victory and he gets the reward. And so chapters 5 to 13, uh, it's five chapters that uh, are called the upper room teaching. All of this happens in one night, right? On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus teaches five chapters worth of scripture in chapter 13 he washes the disciples feet and again it's a physical act but it has spiritual significance back then if you came into a room the right thing in that custom is you would have a servant who would be on standby and they would come and wash your feet but they come into a room and it's not occupied by someone so there's no one there there's no servant they come in and none of the disciples are willing to put up their hand and say okay I volunteer and I will wash everyone's feet. Right? Remember, just before, if you read earlier in the passage, they were fighting about who's going to be the greatest. No one wants to do the small, lowly task. They have that worldly mentality of greatness. Then Jesus puts a towel on and he starts to wash their feet. Peter says, no, no, don't do that. 
And he's probably thinking that James should be doing this stuff. And Peter says, Lord, you won't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Peter says, Lord, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my, he- my, wash my head, wash everything. And then the Lord says, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 13, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Does that mean, does that, mean that uh, Judas was dirty or, or was a guy or the guy didn't have a bath? It's not that. It's referring to salvation, right? Peter was saved. He belonged to God. He had entered into the new covenant yet, but, but he was still an old covenant believer. Sorry, he, had, he hadn't entered into the new covenant yet, but he was an old covenant believer, right? He was washed. So it's good news. You and I don't get saved and then we have to get saved again and be washed over and over. We don't lose our salvation on the daily or by the hour or by the minute. You don't have to hope that you don't get hit by, by a car right, be, right after you lust at a man or a woman. right? You don't have to make sure you're not in sin the minute that you die. It's not like that. You're saved, you're saved. You've been washed. But... We live in this world and our feet get dirty, right? The dust of the world. And so we need to have our minds renewed and our hearts renewed. And that occurs through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through fellowship, through communion. God washes us, but he doesn't resave us, right? Salvation is obtained once and for all and is secured in Christ. And so chapter 14, uh, Jesus, in chapter 14, Jesus goes on to give the disciples more teaching especially about the Holy Spirit. Uh, He says, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He sends a comforter. So Jesus sends a comforter because bad stuff is going to happen to them. And this is one of the main messages or themes of this book. It's encouragement, right? John's Gospel is a very encouraging book, especially to those Christians who are suffering. The Holy Spirit will be a comfort to you. You are going to have difficult times, but the Holy Spirit will be there. In... Chapter 17, there's the high priestly prayer. So in his final prayer, Jesus gives an account of his earthly mission to the Father who sent him. He prays first for himself, then for his disciples, and then for all believers, right? All, for, all believers to come, you know, the church. So read this when you're feeling down because it's Jesus praying for you and I. Verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the cross represents a rending. It it represents a forsaking of the son, but not, not so in John's Gospel. John gives us a unique angle on the cross. In John's Gospel, the glorification of the son begins with the cross. Right, not with the resurrection or ascension. To be lifted up is to be exalted and glorified. So the cross, in John's scheme of things, is the beginning of the exaltation of Jesus. So it's an interesting way that John is looking at it. Basically, at the cross, the Father and the Son will be mutually glorified. When the Son is lifted up on the cross, he will reflect to the universe the Father's glory. And the Father's glory will shine in and through the Son. So verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Christ is praying for his people. It's the apostles at this time, but of course, this applies to the church, to you and I. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Again, it is for the glory for the glory of the Lord. You see that. Then Jesus then Jesus prays that the church be be one, right? To be united, just as the Son and the Father are one. And in the church's oneness and unity. We are to go out and make disciples of all the nations. So verse 17 says, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Great Commission. The amazing thing is that Jesus actually gives us his glory, his divine glory. Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Christ indwells the church. right? The Father indwells Christ. The glory of the Father in the cross and the resurrection is glory given to the church. So John 17, John chapter 17 is building towards this glorious future, right? God's premeditated plan for glory is unveiled. It's revealed in this chapter. It's the hidden reality. It's a revelation. Now, what is the application for us from this? Why, why is glory so important? I was reading... I was reading an article on this, and I'll share the link when, when I can. I'll have to look for it. Uh, but it's a very helpful article speaking about the glory of God. And the point that the author was trying to make is that it's all about glory, right? Finding a glory that will sustain our soul is the very heart of Christianity. If you are a believer, if you're a believer, then you already know that Christianity doesn't promise a lot of things in this life doesn't promise to fix your marriage, to fix your children, to fix your marks at school, to resolve your unemployment, or end all of your anxieties, or stop all of your sin struggles, or free you from depression. It might do some of those things, but there's no guarantee. Right? Christianity does not answer all of our questions. It does not solve all of our problems. Or it doesn't even advise us on who to marry, or which major to study, or which career to pursue. Following Jesus most likely won't make you wealthy, healthy, or popular. In many ways, following Christ will make your life a lot less comfortable. And if you come to God to have all of your felt needs met, then you'll get disappointed and you'll get disappointed fast. But here's what God has promised. Here's what Christianity does promise. The promise is that in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. Right? Jesus' Jesus's death satisfies God's wrath. So that you can be adopted into the family of God. And behold, what will truly satisfy your heart, which is the glory of God. Jesus didn't die to satisfy our old desires for self-glory. right? He, he died to give us brand new desires. And the main one, the main desire to have now is to see and to behold and to be satisfied by the glory of God. And as Christians, we experience foretaste of his glory. We get little glimpses. Um, of his glory and his joy now in his life but we know for certain that we will experience the fullness of the presence of God's glory and joy for all of eternity right so glory is very important and that's that's constantly emphasized that's constantly um, um, echoed out throughout the especially the second half of John's gospel so you get to chapter 19 and that's, uh, that's Jesus' betrayal, his arrest and, and crucifixion. And then in chapter 20, we're running out of time. In chapter 20, um, his resurrection is recorded and he appears to, to the disciples. And then we get that verse again, chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. <clears throat> but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's gospel speaks more about the effect of saving faith than any other book of the Bible. Right? The word believe is used 98 times. So almost 100 times he uses the word believe. And it's never as a noun. Right? John uses the verb believe, not belief. Right? In essence, saving faith is better described as saving believing. Right, at least in John's gospel, it's saving believing. This book is clearly written, is clearly written um, to help people believe, right? To to unbelievers, it's it's there to bring about faith. But don't think that if you're a believer, if you're a believer already, then this is not for your soul. Right? There's a lot of people who think that verse 31 means this book is written to make unbelievers believers. So let me go read Romans instead. No, believing is receiving constantly. It's coming constantly to Christ. Christ is ever giving himself 
as drink and food for our souls, right? We are never putting our lips to the cup. Uh, we, sorry, we are always putting our lips to the cup. We are always putting our tongue to the bread. Uh, life in Christ is like a branch in a vine. That's what Jesus says, right? He is, he is the vine. Um, it's not like a full cup sitting on the table that you take a sip of once or you take a drink of once and then you're done. No, G- receiving Jesus is the soul's drinking of the living water that Jesus is. It's the soul's eating the bread from heaven that Jesus is. Believing is not, it's not even a state of satisfaction in Christ or a state of pleasure in Christ. And John emphasizes this throughout, throughout the gospel that we never put down the cup of living water as though we've had enough. We never lay aside the bread of life as though we're full, right? Ours is a living faith. So um, then there's the, the resurrection and Jesus appears to the, to the disciples. And remember Doubting Thomas? The poor guy is immortalized in scripture forever as Doubting Thomas. So Thomas sees Jesus and in verse 28, he says, My Lord and my God, right? And then Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jehovah's Witnesses will, since they deny the deity of Christ, and here you have Thomas saying that, you know, referring, referring to Jesus as my Lord and my God. Um, they like to explain this away by saying that, Doubting Thomas was blaspheming, right? Like when you take the Lord's name in vain and you say, oh my, oh my, OMG, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, the lengths that people will do in a spiritual darkness to deny the truth. And then let's go to the last chapter quickly. Um, Jesus then appears to the seven disciples in chapter 21. So near the end of the Lord's ministry, uh, remember Jesus, Jesus had prophesied that his disciples would all be scattered. And Peter Rashi promises that he would do no such thing. But of course, when it comes down to the point, Peter collapsed and he denied the Lord. And when the rooster crowed, Peter immediately recognized his sin and he went out and he wept bitterly. So we find that Peter has gone fishing in verse 3. So Jesus has risen, but it looks like Peter hasn't recovered from his denial of Jesus. You know, he's still feeling like a failure or, you know, uh, um, the, the, the remorse or the guilt of betrayal. And he's saying it's over for me. You know, I can't be a minister or a disciple because of my denial of Jesus. I'm going to go back to my old life, to what I used to do, which is fishing. That's what we find him doing. But the Lord is gracious and he meets him there and he cooks him food. <clears throat> and Peter comes out and there's this threefold restoration from verse 15. Uh, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these things, more than these fish, more than your career? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? And so it's a restoration, but um, it's, it's, it's like it's a painful one. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's almost like he's sad. You know, it's not the same Peter as before who had fire and passion who said, Lord, I'll never deny you. Um, but we see that when we get to later parts of um, um, Scripture, when we get to the epistles, he's been restored, right? Christ has restored him. And then John ends uh, chapter 20, sorry, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so he tells us that much more could be written. And in the same way, so much more could be said about this book and how this gospel is amazing and so Christ-centered. But we leave it here for now. Um, are there any questions, any comments, any thoughts that you guys would maybe like to share? Or anything that wasn't clear? Uh, hi, Kaya. Yes, Kaya. <laughs> I just had two questions. So the one is, um, could you please unpack like um, John's use of the word light? Because I'm not sure I fully get what he means. Like when he says, um, "In him was life, and that life was the light of men." Yeah. 
and um, like in First John, when he speaks about um, God as light, like just how he uses that word, what that means when he says that. When he uses light, um, oh, sorry, sorry. <coughs> um, so the um the like the meaning or the spiritual the significance of the word light as John uses it right. Um, so, um, I guess uh, on a very high level, you know, Jesus brings the light of God uh, and God's life to a spiritually dark and dying world, right? So, I mean, Scripture, it, light is almost used synonymously as synonymously as life, you know, where there's light, where light, light shines in the darkness and drives out all the decaying, all the bad, all the evil, evil, it brings, it brings about life, Right. And scripture tells us that, you know, God is the source of life and light, right? Um, if you think back to like Psalms, uh, it's, I can't remember which Psalm, but, you know, it says uh, a lot of the Psalms refer to God as being, you know, the fountain of life. And he's the light by which we see uh, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. So in, in many, it's like, it's, it's, it's. It's basically like life and vitality and goodness, right? And so the significance, I guess, with John using it with Christ is that, remember now, through Christ, we see God the Father, right? Um, if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. And so Christ is light incarnate. He brings light and, um, uh, and light represents also like eternal life. So I feel like I'm re repeating words here, but I can't find syn uh, synonymous words for light. But if you think about um, Revelation, Revelation says at the end, at the end of time, when we're in fullness of glory with God, there will be no need for the sun or the stars or the moon because, you know, we will have Christ. He will be our light because he's the fullness of um, of light. So... Yeah, it's 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 just you know light and dark, good and evil, but Christ is the only good, right? And with good, there's everything good in in Him, and um, He embodies light. So, yeah, it's it's that's that's I, that's as as deep as I can think of it. You know, it's just a very um, constant theme. You know, light represents God, and godliness, and Christ likeness, and and life, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, thanks, because it seems like it's, it's, it's a dense one, because like you're saying, there's aspects of it that seem like you're talking about in terms of clarity, mm -hmm. but then there's others, it, it, it seems like the sense is more like moral purity, and oh, yeah. just all these things, wonderful things packed into it. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's used on, on many levels, you know, like, so right now I'm thinking on uh, the same level as glory, you know, God's glory is just his whole weightiness and all that. And so, like, the, I think light, the, the, the shining, the light of Christ carries the same weight, the same idea. It's just, you know, it's a weighty word. But in, in context, it, it's used on different levels, but it, it always still has the same meaning, right? It's bringing uh, Christ-likeness, it's bringing goodness, it's bringing... Um, um, the glory of God, shining the glory of God into um, the the darkness of the world. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the second question is: uh, Could you please explain like why the, um, the the call of the disciples in John seems slightly different um, than in the synoptics? Uh, like for example, in John, we see like Peter's brother calls him. And then in the synoptics, we see um, Jesus meet Peter. If I remember correctly, he was fishing. Um, so, yeah, just explaining that. Yeah, it's it's a bit tricky because you you'll find that uh, a lot of a lot of details. You you kind of have to consolidate them into like a bigger picture. So even with the call of the disciples, I I, th I feel I think that's like an an additional detail that Matthew will ignore, right? So, for example, um, 
if you if you read like this is the only example I can think of, but if you think of the synoptic gospels and uh the Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Um if you read the synoptic gospels uh you you it's easy to think that there's one it's it's I think it's very clear that Jesus did that twice where he cleansed the temples and he chased out the 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 money uh, people but it's kind of like you have to take all of them and you kind of have to like consolidate them and all those details but it's something we'll get into when we look at the synoptic gospels next week because you'll see a lot of overlapping or a lot of filling in the blanks you know mark will ignore this john will state this uh luke will spend a lot of time on this it's something that we'll, we'll go into deeper so it's really just uh, most of the time it's down to like authorship why what they're choosing to focus on or what they're choosing to not really emphasize so i hope that makes sense okay um any anyone else anyone um thoughts to share i'm going to give it a countdown and if there's nothing then we're going to end it there okay so we'll stop it there um